Today's text is from 1 John chapter 2, verse 1 to 6. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this, we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Let me open us with a quick word of prayer. Father, may you speak to us through your word, may be living and active, and may our hearts be receptive to what it is your spirit wants to speak to us. Our prayer is come, Lord. Your servants are listening. Amen. I'm going to start with two rhetorical questions. Don't actually answer it. But uh, what does it mean to be a Christian? And um, what should it look like? It seems like two very basic questions, pretty simple questions. But interestingly enough, there's currently quite a bit of disagreement among professing Christians in our, in our country, right? I don't know if this is true around the world, but at least in our country. And I like statistics. I find them interesting, so I have some funds, well, they're not fun, but statistics for you. In 2020, Ryan Burge, he is a social scientist. He released a survey, or the, the results of a survey, of, of, of self-identifying evangelical Christians. So these are people who would say, hey, I'm an evangelical Christian. And he found that over 40%, it was like 40.3%, attended church once a year or less. It's a pretty shocking number. So these are, again, these are people who would identify as not just Christians, but evangelical Christians, and almost half have no connection, no meaningful connection to the community of faith. Uh, another survey, Ligonier Ministries did, did this in 2020, and they found that 30%, again, of self-identifying evangelical Christians agreed with the statement that Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God. So this means that over a quarter of people who would say, hey, I'm a Christian, no, I'm, just a, I'm an evangelical Christian, uh, do not believe in the deity of Christ, and have no connection to a church, which again is, is an alarming question of what does it mean to be a Christian, what should it look like? Uh, if we look at just people who would identify as Christians more broadly, it's not much better. In 2021, George Barna, again, well-known research polar guy, released uh, results from a survey of over 2,000 self-identified Christians. And what they said is 66% said having faith is more important than which faith. So whether your faith is in a Hindu god or in the Buddha or in Allah, doesn't matter as long as you have faith, 66%. 58% said that if a person is good enough or does enough good things, they can earn their way into heaven. Uh, that's obviously a rejection of everything Protestant Christianity stands for, and I'll tell you, there isn't a Catholic on the planet who knows their doctrine who would agree with that statement either. And then 57% believe in karma, which is bonkers, because karma rejects everything about the gospel. Everything that happens to us is because we deserve it, and there's no place for compassion or grace. Anyways, 
We have a definition crisis of what it means and what it should look like to be a Christian in America. So these results show us. And what, what can happen when there's this many people, again, who profess to be Christians, but yet deny either basic tenets of Christianity or who live lives that, that, that don't reflect even basic elements of what it means to be part of the Christian faith, it leads to confusion over, okay, well then what does it mean to be Christian? And am I a Christian? Am I getting it wrong? Who's getting it wrong? What does it look like? Well, John wrote his letter, 1 John, over 2,000 years ago to answer almost those exact questions. It's interesting, 2,000 years later, 1 John speaks very relevantly to, to where we are in our country and our religious uh, uh, kind of culture and context. So give us some background on 1 John. Again, Blake started this uh, almost two or three months ago, so we're you know, going to do some refreshing. Uh, it was possibly written to the Ephesian church. First uh, John is unusual for New Testament letters because it doesn't include a to the church of so-and-so like all of Paul's letters do. So we don't know who it's written to, but John spent a substantial amount of time ministering at the church in Ephesus. And when you compare the, what's going on in 1 John with what uh, John writes to the church of Ephesus in Revelation, there's overlap. And so people think, well, and the fact that he writes with such deep uh, care and love and an intimate knowledge of, of whoever he's writing to, people, I think uh, uh, the church of Ephesus is a good guess. Um, it seems that what had happened is that there was a group of false teachers who had infiltrated the church at Ephesus, teaching what you call a, a kind of proto-Gnosticism. Gnosticism uh, was a, a constellation of beliefs. It wasn't just one belief. It was kind of a constellation of beliefs that held certain ideas in common and became much more prevalent in the second and third centuries. Christians had to battle some of these ideas. But some of these ideas that, that Gnostics held, to, held in common was one, a hard dualism. They said that, that humans are made of, of mind and body or soul and body. And what's important, the only thing that's important is your mind and your soul. And the body is inherently corrupt. Physical reality is inherently bad. And so there's a couple of results of this. For one, they would inevitably deny the incarnation. If physicality is inherently corrupt and evil and sinful, God cannot become a man. And so they would in some way or other deny the incarnation. Another common consequence is some Gnostics, because they believe the body was inherently bad, would treat their bodies badly. They, they, they would develop these intense aesthetic rituals of fasting and, and beating themselves. But then others would, would, would kind of go into a moral permissiveness, like, hey, the body doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what you do in your body, so go party and have fun. And it seems like that latter one was happening among some of these false teachers. So again, this is before Gnosticism was a developed worldview. These are probably kind of some of the, the seeds that grew into Gnosticism, but we see this kind of proto-Gnosticism among these teachers. And by the time John writes this letter, the teachers have, have, have come in, they've wreaked their havoc, and they've left, and they've taken people with them. And so he's writing to this group of believers who've gone through an ugly church split, are discouraged, are trying to pick up the pieces, and he's writing to encourage them, to assure them that they are, in fact, true Christians, and to let them know how they can know that. And over the course of this letter, he's going to do that by giving three tests of authentic Christianity. And we're going to be looking at these multiple times as we preach through 1 John. But the first test he gives is a moral test. How do you, how do you know you are a Christian? Again, we got to differentiate. This is not how you become a Christian, and this is massively important. But writing to those who already profess faith in Christ, how, do, how can we have assurance 
that we are Christians? Well, first, we obey Christ's commands. That's the moral test. The second is the social test, is that we love other Christians. We love one another. And the third test is the doctrinal test, which in this is belief in the Incarnation. That the Son of God, the second member of the Trinity, existed from all eternity, took on flesh and lived among us and died on a cross and rose again. Now, 1 John has an incredibly confusing structure of how it's organized. If you look at 15 commentaries, you will see 15 different ways to organize 1 John. And if you've ever read it, what you'll find is, is John will, will, will kind of tack down one line of thinking, and in the middle of a sentence will change direction of thought, and it's very difficult to follow at times. Very different than Paul. But uh, I read a commentary by John Stott, and I think he gets it right. I think the way, and I'm going to organize my, uh, our, our journey through 1 John uh, in the way that John Stott, again, the great Anglican rector and theologian of the 20th century, the way he looks at it. So what, basically what's happening is John goes through these three tests of authentic faith, the moral test, the social test, the doctrinal test, and he does it three different times. And that's why it gets confusing. Because he goes through his three tests, and then he does them again, extrapolating a little bit more out of, you know, what does this moral test look like? What does this social test look like? And then he does it a third time. And so as you're reading through 1 John, you're like, I feel like we've talked about this already. I know we've talked about this. Well, it's, again, it's because he's doing these three tests over and then over and then over again. So uh, the outline for us this morning, we're going to be looking at the first test of authentic faith, the moral test, obedience. And the outline for us this morning is first the object of our faith, and then the second point is going to be the first test of authentic faith, or sorry, obedience, the first test of authentic faith. Again, a quick recap, because it's been three months. Uh, in chapter one, John confronts what seems to be some of the false claims of these teachers. In verses 5 to 10, we see various claims he's confronting. So in verse 6, if anyone says he has fellowship with God while he walks in darkness, we lie. Uh, again, in verse 8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And in verse 10, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar. These are false claims that these teachers are making, that, hey, I can, I can walk in darkness and still know God. Uh, or, or maybe other claims are that, look, I don't have sin. I've never sinned. And he's, he's addressing these claims. <clears throat> and so he tells us, what we learn from, again, Paul's response in chapter 1 to these false claims is, a Christian cannot have fellowship with God and walk in darkness, and yet at the same time, a Christian cannot claim to be without sin. And that puts us at a kind of a strange crossroads. Well, if I, if I can't be in darkness and have fellowship with God, and yet I also can't claim to be without sin, how do we think about sin? And this first point we're looking at in our sermon is an incredibly important point for this entire epistle. And if we miss this, we could misunderstand a basic element of the gospel. Because what we are looking at, again, what, what John is giving to us are signs of authentic faith. Not what brings us into fellowship with God. Not what brings us favor with God. But if we have become Christians, what are the signs it ought to produce? And if we get the cart before the horse in this, if we begin to look at these signs of authentic faith as what, you know, gives us favor with God, we'll lose the gospel. So this first point is massively important because it's Jesus who is the object of our faith, not our obedience, not our love, not even our doctrinal precision. It's the person of Jesus Christ who is the object of our faith. So first point, Jesus, the object of our faith. Uh, John begins with one explicit reason why he's writing this letter in the first 
half of verse 1, my little children, I'm writing, writing these things to you so that you may not sin. He's very upfront. I don't want you to sin. He's not just referring to what we typically think of as sin. You know, don't steal, don't lie, don't whatever. He's referring to all three of these tests. Yeah, uh, don't sin in those ways, but also don't sin in the way that you should love one another. Don't sin in your beliefs about Christ. Don't believe false things. Jesus, John, in essence, he's, what he's telling his readers is, look, I, I want you to take sin seriously. That's not a surprise. Because John spent a whole lot of time with Jesus. He was one of the, not just the 12 disciples, he was one of the three who, who, who had close communion with Jesus, spent three years walking with Christ, and Jesus took sin pretty seriously. So I'm... Um, my oldest, Caleb, is at the age where I can actually start reading to him from the Bible. I've always had like a children's storybook, you know, which is like a various abridgments. But Caleb is finally at the age where I can read to him. We read from the, the NLT, an easier to understand translation. And he can start grasping parts of it, and it's a ton of fun. And, uh, and, and I'm just, a quick story that's like not really related to the point. But um, it's, when you start reading kids the Bible, funny things happen. So I, I come home. So we're reading through Mark. And it talks about the Pharisees and the religious leaders. I'm explaining that, you know, these are like the pastors of the day, but they didn't believe in Jesus, and they actually were part of the reason Jesus was crucified, and so they're kind of the bad guys in the story. So I come home from work, and Caleb and Addie are chasing each other, shouting something, and I'm like, what are they shouting? And they're shouting, run, the religious leaders are coming, the religious leaders, and I'm thinking, boy, if on a Sunday morning they're running around the sanctuary saying, run, the religious leaders are coming. Like, this may sound very strange. So if you hear them saying that, that's where they're getting it from. But um, a week or two ago, I was reading in Mark 10 where Jesus talks about sin. And he gets to this very shocking statement in Mark 10, 43. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell. And so... I asked Caleb, Caleb, what does this mean? He says, well, it's better to cut off your hand than go to hell. <laughs> wow, he got that. That's amazing. I'm feeling so proud, proud dad moment. And I'm like, yeah, Caleb, Jesus wants us to take sin very seriously. So, like, okay, just make sure you understand what Jesus is saying. Now, Caleb, so should you cut off your hand? And he gets this look in his face, like when he knows the answer. He's like, yes. I said, no, <laughs> you should not cut off your hand. That's not what Jesus is saying. Right? Because cutting off your hand doesn't keep us from sinning. But what Jesus is saying is that if you really could choose between sinning and cutting off your hand, you should cut your hand off. Jesus took sin very seriously. And so, of course, one of his closest disciples will too. And the question is, why is sin such a serious thing? And John's already addressed this in chapter 1, verse 5. He says, this is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. And if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie. The reason sin is such a serious thing is because it separates us from the God who is light. And so John pleads off the bat with his readers, Do not sin, my beloved children. I'm writing these things so that you won't sin. But yet, chapter 1, verse 8, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. Verse 10, If we say we have not sinned, we make God to be a liar. So here we have sin is a terrible thing, and yet we sin. What are we going to do with this? And this is where we get to Christ, the object of our faith. Look at the second half of verse 1 and verse 2. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, not for ours only, but also for the sins of 
of the whole world. Again, the answer to that question, if sin is terrible and yet we sin, what's the answer? It's, it's in Jesus himself. And there's two specific ministries that John wants to remind the Ephesian church of. And it's that Christ is their advocate and Christ is their propitiation. And I'm going to actually take those in reverse order because it makes a little bit more sense of, of how we come to Christ. So first, Christ is our propitiation. Kind of a mouthful of a word, but to propitiate means to to turn away or to appease. It evokes Old Testament imagery of sacrifices, of the blood of goats and bulls covering the altar, of turning away the wrath of a holy God against the sin of his people. To turn away. Now we have to ask, though, what what does God's wrath mean? If propitiation turns away God's wrath, it satisfies God's wrath, what does God's wrath mean? I think some of us maybe if we're honest, struggle a bit with the idea of God's wrath. Um, and one of the reasons we may struggle with it is because we are thinking wrongly about God's wrath. Our tendency is to think of God's wrath as we think of our wrath. We see how wrath is carried out among people, and we assume that's what God's wrath must be like. But that's not what God's wrath is like. Our anger, our wrath is often petty, capricious, more dependent on whether we slept last night or whether we're hungry prone to over-exaggeration. If you've been married, that's right. Like, you always do this. No, you don't. That's a lie. And we assume that's God. He's up there throwing a holy tantrum, throwing things in his heavenly throne room. And of course, it's blasphemy. John Stott, again, I love John Stott. He says and does all things well, or he said and did all things well. He has one of the best definitions of God's wrath. He says, God's wrath is his settled, controlled, holy antagonism to evil. It's as settled. It's not prone to God is you know not prone to whether God slept last night. It's not prone to whether he's hungry. Uh, it's controlled. God is not throwing a tantrum, but it's his holy antagonism towards evil. God is light, and him is no darkness. If he did not have an antagonism towards evil and darkness, he would not be good. We do not believe in the yin and the yang as if there's some balance to the universe and there must be good and evil. No, God is good. And he must oppose evil, even when the evil runs through the very hearts of his own people. That is what God's wrath is. It's simply his holy antagonism towards evil. So what is our hope when the darkness surfaces in our own hearts, when we know that we stand condemned before a holy God? It's that Jesus is our propitiation. He is the one who turns away God's wrath. Now, let's be clear. It does not say that Jesus uh, shows us the way to propitiation, like he gives us a seven-step path, follow this, uh, and then you'll find it. No, no, no. It says Jesus is our propitiation. It does not say that Jesus helps us propitiate God's wrath as he comes along and kind of gives us the boost we need. No, he in himself where the saints, when Jesus Christ went, on a, went up on a hill outside of Jerusalem and died on a cross, he took into his very person all of the wrath that was rightly, rightfully pointed at our sin, at our evil. He took it into himself. He is our propitiation. And he took it all, all of it. No remainder for anyone who will accept this gracious gift from Jesus. And we have to remember... Passing these tests of authentic faith cannot propitiate the wrath of God. Christ alone is our propitiation. Again, he is the ground of our faith. He's the source of our faith. Theologically, we would say propitiation refers to the moment of justification when a Christian places their faith in Christ and God 
declares them righteous because they are now clothed by Christ. It doesn't mean that they actually live a righteous life, right? We're not saved by our works, but it's that when God looks at us, he doesn't see our, our broken, sinful selves. He sees the beautiful righteousness of Christ. It's a once and, and, and done moment. It's not a repeated, we don't repropitiate God's wrath. It's once and for all. When Christ died on that cross, it absorbed all of God's judgment on sin. There's none left. But the question is, okay, after we've been justified, after Christ has propitiated, it's been the propitiation for our sin, and we, what happens if we still sin after that? Then what? Here's where we get to Christ's second ministry, which is that he is our advocate. Verse 1b, but if anyone does sin, again, after you've been justified, after you've turned to Christ, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. An advocate has a wide meaning. You could interpret it as an uh, intercessor, a mediator, a helper. But the idea is that someone who helps a second, who assists a second party, I'm sorry, I'm getting this wrong, someone who represents the interests of a second party to a third party. So you think of an attorney, they have a client, so they're representing the interests of their client before a judge. That's the image. But we have to be really careful about something, and that who is Jesus advocating against? So say if Christ the advocate, and, and the initial thought might be, well, he's advocating against God the judge who wants to condemn us. But that's not the image here. And we know that, again, because John is not writing to those who don't know Christ. He's writing to those who do know Christ. And Romans 8.1 tells us, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's no qualification in that statement. For those of us who have trusted in Christ, God is not our judge, but he's our Father. And that's exactly what it says. It says we have an advocate not with the judge, but with the Father. So who is Christ advocating against? Well, he's advocating against the accuser, the devil. Literally, the, the Greek word for devil, diabolos, it literally means accuser or slanderer. One of the tools Satan uses against his people is accusations. And he comes against God's people as if God is still their judge, as if the verdict is still out, as if God could bring down the hammer any moment. And Christ as our advocate means that he exposes the devil as a fraud. He says, no, no, this one is mine. You can't have him. Christ is our advocate. Vine Street, who cares what the devil may say against you? Who cares what others may say against you? Who cares what your own heart says against you? Christ the righteous advocates for you, even as we sit here, for the Father, against the devil. This one is mine. I've bought him, I've bought her with my own blood. Christ is the object and ground of our faith. We have to get this clear. Our faith is not in passing these tests. Our faith is not in what we do. It's in Christ as our propitiation. Christ as our advocate. Obedience is not our propitiation. Christ is. Loving other Christians is not our advocate. Jesus Christ is. Our hope is in the person of Jesus and what he has done for us and what he is doing for us right now as we sit here in the presence of the Father. So that's our first point. Jesus, the object of our faith. The second point is, is we get to this first test of authentic faith, obedience. The first 
test of authentic faith. Follow along as I read verses 3 to 6. And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. And by this we know that we are in him. Whoever whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Now undergirding this first test is, is an applied question of, how can we know if we have fellowship with God? That's the implied question. Again, John is, is writing most primarily, it says in chapter 1, verse 3, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you, we proclaim the gospel to you so that you may have fellowship with us and ultimately with God the Father. That's what he wants for, 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 for his writers, is, is that they might have fellowship and know that they have fellowship with God. And he uses three different words in this text, I don't know if you caught that, to describe fellowship. He describes fellowship with God as first knowing God, as second loving God, and then third as abiding in Christ. Or, um, yeah, abiding in Christ. And so first knowing God. What does it mean to have fellowship with God? What does it mean to have fellowship with God? First is that we know him. It's interesting, as I've been going out into the neighborhood and talking to people, this is purely anecdotal, but I'm seeing it enough, I'm starting to see a pattern. But you ask a lot of people, you know, what do you think about God? And they'll say, well, I, I believe that there's some higher power. I believe there's some God, but I really don't think we can know what he's like. I just don't think we can know. And as a Christian, part of that I agree with, yes. God is far beyond our comprehension. No human lover plumbed the depths of God's being. Absolutely. But we can know God because he's spoken to us. He's given us his word. He's told us things about what he is like, we can actually know God. It's a beautiful thing. The more I talk to people who say, like, I, just, I don't think we can know, it's such good news to say, no, I think I can know God because he's told me. So first, fellowship is knowing God, but of course fellowship is far more than just knowing God. It's also loving God. Again, verse 5, uh, he says, whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected, the love for God. To have fellowship with God is not just to know things about God, but to love Him, to delight in Him, to worship Him. And then finally, it involves abiding in Christ. In verse 6, whoever says he abides in Him. Again, fellowship involves knowing God, loving God, and abiding in His Son, similar to Paul's teaching on being in Christ, of Christ's righteousness clothing us, of having a a walk with Jesus, a, a genuine fellowship with him. Okay, but, but again, the question is, this is what fellowship with God is. How do we know that we have fellowship? Not how do we have fellowship? How do we come into fellowship? Again, Christ is the object of our faith, but how do I know that I actually have fellowship with God? And he gives us that first evidence. Now, before we get to the, what, what the first test is, I think it's helpful to just point out what he doesn't say is an evidence of that we have fellowship with God. I find this interesting. Hopefully you do too. And these aren't bad things, by the way, but they're, they're just things that John did not deem worthy as evidence that we actually are, have fellowship with God. First, he does not say having spiritual experiences is evidence that we have fellowship with God. Uh, if you've read the book by Elizabeth Gilbert, E. Pray Love, I call it the Millennial Manifesto of Spirituality. If you want to know what millennials think of spirituality, read her book. It's, it's actually very well written, um, but she describes 
many spiritual experiences of in her apartment in Manhattan hearing voices of uh, spiritual experiences eating pizza in Italy, uh, spiritual experiences in her time in a Buddhist monastery in India. But she is not a Christian. She would not profess to be a Christian. And she is most certainly not a Christian. We can, again, spiritual experiences are not evidences necessarily of, of fellowship with God because God is not the only spiritual being in this cosmos. We can have spiritual experiences but yet not have fellowship with God. Spiritual experience is not one of the evidences. Second, he does, not, he does not say that knowing lots of biblical and theological information is an evidence that we have fellowship with God. Again, doctrine will be one of the tests, but John's emphasis is not on quantity of knowledge, but it's on the quality of that knowledge. Do you really believe that the eternal Son of God came in the flesh for your sins, that you might have new life, and you're willing to lay down your life and follow him. It's in the quality of that belief, not just having tons of information about who God is. Again, you can have an encyclopedic knowledge of all things Bible theology and not be in fellowship with God. Of course, best case scenario is have an encyclopedic knowledge of you know, God and be in fellowship, but I'm just saying it's not, it's not one of the evidences that he puts. Another one, he does not say that behaving as a decent and good person is evidence that we have fellowship with God. I think this is closer to what the test is that John uses, but it's not just being it, you know, behaving kind of a basically good and decent way because there are many people who behave in good and decent ways who are not in fellowship with God. Rather, the test of whether we are in fellowship with God is obedience to Christ's commands. Again, in verse 3, And by this we know, we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Now, a couple questions here. What do commandments refer to? And one thing it's helpful to point out is he says commandments, not commands. And that's an important difference. A command is more of a situationally specific directive. So if I said after today, you know, after church today, I want you all to go straight home. I'm not saying that, by the way. But if I did, that would be a command. It doesn't apply to tomorrow. It doesn't apply next Sunday. It's just it's specifically for this, you know, situation, go home. A commandment is something that is far more expansive, far more comprehensive. So the Ten Commandments, they're not giving us situationally specific directives, but they're giving us directives that cover expansive parts of life. For instance, do not murder. It doesn't say just don't murder someone if they're, you know, really not bothering you. It says don't murder, period. And it's not just don't murder someone physically, but Jesus shows us that you, you can murder someone in how you think of them. And you are guilty of breaking the commandment. It's a, it's a whole life ethic of how do we relate to people who are made in God's image. Commandments are far more expansive. And so it says, those who keep Christ's commandments. What exactly is he referring to? Exact, which commandments? Are there specific ones? Well, there's one that we can know he's referring to because it's one of the main themes of the entire epistle. And this obvious commandment is found in John 13, 34 to 35, where Jesus says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you, and you are to love one another. And that's, again, that's the, that's the whole second test that we're in fellowship with God, is that we love each other. So, of course, when it says those, one of the ways that we know that we can assure our hearts that we do, in fact, know God, is that we keep Christ's commands to love one another. But again, it's not whoever keeps Christ's commandment, but it's plural commandments. I think it probably refers to all of Christ's teaching, what we find in 
his Sermon on the Mount, what we see in the way he interacted with people. And again, I think that's what it's referring to because again, John, he, he oftentimes it looks like he's changing his, his, his topic, but really he's just using synonyms. And he describes keeping Christ's commandments as, in verse 6, walking in the same way that he walked. How do we know our lives look like Christ? How do you know that you know God? You keep his commandments. How do you know that you love God? You keep his word. How do you know you abide in Christ? You walk in the way that he walked. Now I have to give a very important caveat, which is that this is not saying that only those who keep these perfectly only those who always keep Christ's commandments perfectly are those who can know that they have fellowship. Because again, verse 8, he says, if anyone says he has no sin, you deceive yourself. The question is, are we trying? Are we really striving? I want to keep Christ's commandments. Yeah, I, I sin and I fail, but like I'm trying. It's, I'm, I'm honestly striving to keep the commandments of Christ. If so, then you can be assured you have fellowship with God, regardless of whether he feels near, regardless of what you may have in your past that you think disqualifies you. You can be assured God is near you. You're in fellowship with him. Now, what if someone claims to know God but disobeys his commandments, not in the sense of none of us are perfect, but in the sense of brazenly, wantonly, putting aside the commandments of Christ, but yet says they have fellowship with God. Verse 4, he is a liar, or she is a liar. It may seem like a pretty harsh indictment, but first, we're dealing with John here, the son of thunder. The Holy Spirit did not eradicate the personalities of the writers. This is the John Piper of the early church. But second, you've got to think of what he's doing. He is writing that statement to the false teachers, to the wolves in sheep's clothing who walked in darkness and were trying to lead Christ's precious saints into darkness. And so he doesn't mince words. These are liars. I don't think we should call each other liars if we think that's happening, by the way. This is not a do as John did, but just get the sense of this is serious stuff. What is the first test that we are in fellowship with God? It's that we obey Christ's commandments, that we're striving to walk as Jesus walked. Not perfectly. No one does that perfectly. We repent often. Again, Martin Luther said the life of a discipleship is one of repentance. But we're striving. We want to be like Christ. So how can we apply this text to our passage? Hopefully there are ways you've been seeing as we've been going through. But I guess one way we could apply this is, is just the question, where are you finding your assurance that you are in fellowship with God? I think a lot of times we find our assurance in our emotional state before God. God feels near or God feels far. God, it doesn't seem like God loves me based on the circumstances of my life. And so one encouragement is don't find your assurance in how you feel. Now, every Christian knows there are times when God's hand is so manifestly at work. He just seems near and he's teaching us and we know he loves us. We know he's at work and we don't need assurance in those moments. We know that we are God's. And he is ours. But in the seasons where God seems far, in the seasons where maybe we wonder if he really does care about us, if he does love us, don't find your assurance in how you feel. First, if you're in those seasons, preach the gospel to yourself. Christ is our propitiation, and there's no remainder. 
He, he took all of God's righteous wrath, his holy antagonism against our evil. He took all of it. There's none left over for us. When we come before God, no matter how we may feel about him, he is not our judge. He's our father. And as a very imperfect human father, I can tell you there's a whole lot of love for your children. Imagine the love God has for us as a perfect father. Preach the gospel to yourself. Christ is the object of our faith, not whether we feel like God is near, not whether we feel like we're passing these tests. So first, preach the gospel to yourself. But second, stop worrying about feelings and simply seek faithful obedience. When we find ourselves wondering if God is near, are we in fellowship with God? Hold your feelings with a grain of salt and just seek faithful obedience. So maybe one practical takeaway is, what is one thing that Jesus and his word has been calling you to do this week? What's some way that he's been pressing upon your heart? What's something in his scripture he's been trying to get through to you? What's one small step of obedience you can take in this time? Again, because as John tells us, for by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Let's pray. Jesus, I pray that you will always be the object of our faith. That we will have the gospel clear, that we will know the freedom of of unconditional love and grace you've shown us. And may that flow into a natural desire to obey, to follow, to offer all of our lives up to the God who has loved us so much. Please may help us take this word and apply it to our lives in the way that you see fit. Holy Spirit, we trust you to do so. Pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.